I'm sure we've all had moments where we question, where we doubt, where darkness enters in. I remember January, the second year of my seminary formation. So for those who don't know, seminary is a long process. It's about seven years, as long as you already have a four-year degree. So I was in the second year of my seminary formation. In January, it was a hard time. I had an amazing first year. Everything was great. Prayer was great. I loved just reducing everything in the simplicity of, of seminary life, the studies, the focus. But all of a sudden, second year, it wasn't easy anymore. The prayer wasn't easy. I didn't have sort of the warm fuzzies anymore. Studying philosophy was hard. Not something I really thoroughly enjoyed, although I liked it in parts. And life just seemed to be a bit of a grind. And that's when darkness and doubt starts to mess with you. And it did, it messed with me. And I thought to myself after a while experiencing this for a prolonged amount of time that, well, maybe I'm not supposed to be a priest, right? God doesn't want me to be miserable. I'm pretty miserable. Therefore, he, clearly I'm not supposed to be a priest. So I talked to my spiritual director. I convinced him. I went and talked to the rector of the seminary. I convinced him. They both gave me their blessing to leave. I decided on the date that I was going to leave. I packed my bags, had everything ready to go, and I went to bed. And there was an excitement that I had, but also I didn't sleep too well. In, the heart, in my heart, I knew I was making a bit of a rash decision. I knew that I wasn't being 100% honest with God, that I had told him, I feel this, therefore this. But I never asked him what he thought. I woke up the next morning and there were three feet of snow. And I realized then and there that I wasn't meant to leave. And all of a sudden in that moment, what happened? I remembered every single door that opened at exactly the right time for me to be able to even get into seminary. The fact that the Archdiocese had accepted me. The fact that my apartment lease ran out the exact month that I needed to start in the parish. The fact that despite being terrified of telling my boss at work, they were so supportive. All these doors had opened and I had forgotten all of that in those few months of darkness and of struggle. So when I woke up that morning, I realized all of that. It came back to me and I realized I'm not supposed to leave. I went back to my spiritual director and to the rector and I said, I was just kidding. But you know, from that moment on, I never wanted to leave. Doesn't mean there weren't times of doubt, doubt or darkness, but I never wanted to leave. So why do I tell you this? The transfiguration of our Lord, which we heard in today's gospel, were those signs for Peter, for James, and for John. They were the signs, the doors they were opening that they needed for their vocation to persevere. That was the event that Jesus gave them that they could always look back upon in the times of darkness and doubt which come with the cross. And the cross was now looming in their future. The transfiguration was the event that they could look back to and say, you are called, do not give up. Stay the course. Don't let darkness and doubt win. 
Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah and he has called you. Persevere. The transfiguration of our Lord on Mount Tabor was chock full of signs for anybody who knew their scripture. They were signs that all pointed to one thing, the reality of Jesus Christ. That he was not just a man, but that he was truly God. The transfiguration was what I call fulfillment events. That one event showed the fulfillment of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy. Showing that Christ was the Messiah, the one that generations have been waiting for. 1,500 years before that moment on, on Mount Tabor, before the transfiguration, do you remember the Israelites were wandering in the desert? They had just been freed by Moses from the slavery of Egypt, and for 40 years they were trekking in the desert seeking freedom, seeking the promised land. For 40 years they didn't have a home. This was the Exodus. Where did they live during that time? They didn't have houses. They were wandering every single day. They pitched tents. Every, every night they slept in tents. There was one tent that was set aside. It was called the Tent of Meeting. And that's where the tabernacle stayed. Why is that important? Because the tabernacle marked the divine presence. It was God's presence on that journey with his people. And if you notice in the accounts, that tent with the tabernacle was always covered with a cloud. And the cloud was a symbol of the divine presence. The divinity was here. It was this mystery pointing to the reality of God's divinity. Now go back to Mount Tabor. During the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, they made what? Tents. They were saying by that action, this is not our home. This earth is not our home. We're pilgrims on the way to something better, which is the promised land. It's the new exodus. You and I are in that same exodus still. We may have apartments, we may have homes, but that's not our real home. Those are our tents. The real home is in heaven. On Mount Tabor, Jesus was covered with a cloud. That cloud, that cloud was pointing to his divine nature. It was reminding Peter, James, and John and us that God is still with us, that he's still among us, that he's not abandoned us on this journey in the desert. He continues to guide us. And none of this was lost on Peter, James, and John. They knew their scripture. They knew their Old Testament. And they understood the amazing signs which they were witnessing. That's why they felt fear. I don't know too many grown men that when they see a cloud are terrified. But they were terrified. Why? Because they knew it wasn't just a cloud. They knew they were standing next to the God of the universe. And when you know you're standing next to the God of the universe, fear sets in. And by the way, the reason that I use a veil on the chalice, which we brought out in a few minutes, the reason that there's a veil on the tabernacle downstairs in the Undercroft Chapel is to signify the cloud, the mysterious divine presence pointing to the reality of divinity, which will be on that altar 
in that very chalice in just a few moments. What other signs were made clear to Peter, James, and John on that mountain? When Moses used to enter the tent of meeting and he would converse with our Lord in the desert, what happened to his face? It would be radiant with light. What happened to Christ on Mount Tabor during the transfiguration? His whole body radiated light. His face changed in appearance, scripture says, and his clothing became like dazzling white. Moses' face shone because he was in the presence of divinity. Christ shone in completion because he was divinity. And interestingly enough, when you look in the book of Daniel, God was referred to with a strange title called the Ancient of Days. And in that book, he's depicted as taking his throne. And when he does so, he's in clothing, it says, white as snow, dazzling white. Again, this is the fulfillment pointing to his divinity. This was another sign for Peter, James, and John. Why? Because Christ knows that in a few days, he's going to be on the cross. And darkness is going to set in and doubt's going to set in. Is this really God? And they're going to be able to remember back to all of this stuff that happened on the transfiguration. But there were more signs to come on that mountain. God the Father sent all of the prophets to pave the way for one person, Jesus. Moses and Elijah appeared on that mountain. Moses was not God. Elijah was not God. But they were all pointing to the reality of Christ. And when they appeared on Mount Tabor, their very presence said, this is why we existed. We didn't exist for ourselves. We existed for him, our Lord. We were pointing forward. Everything we did was pointing forward to his reality, to his coming. He is the fulfillment. And then Moses and Elijah gave one more gift. Scripture says that the two of them conversed. And they appeared in glory in front of Christ. That was pointing forward to the resurrection and the ascension. Because scripture says, if you go back and look at the ascension and the resurrection scene, both instances, there were two men there conversing in glory, in white. They were saying that the true transfiguration of Jesus Christ will take place in the resurrection and in the ascension. And then he will finally enter into his glory. In other words, the transfiguration is the ultimate fulfillment event. It's also an event that points forward to the completion of the journey, the Exodus journey. And all of these signs and more were given to Peter, James, and John so that they would not leave when darkness set in. My transfiguration moments were those doors opening perfectly for me to go into seminary. Every single one of you has had transfiguration moments just like that, I promise you. For those who are married, think about how everything had to work out just perfectly for you to be with your spouse. Of all the people in the world, it all worked out perfectly to get married. 
That is a transfiguration moment. For those of us who are converts or reverts to the faith, think how everything worked out perfectly to come back. The person that said exactly the right word, the thing that you read that is exactly what you needed, that brought you back to the faith. Those are transfiguration moments. Think about the times in which God spoke very plainly to you in a homily, as if he knew exactly what you were thinking, because he does. There's so many more, but these are all transfiguration events in our lives, and God gives them to us for a purpose, so that when difficulties set in, and they will, the cross will set in, that we don't despair, that we don't run, but that we persevere. Because we know that the cross is never the end of the story. There is the resurrection and the ascension to look forward to. Had Peter, James, and John walked away when things got difficult, millions of people, millions of people would have been denied the faith over the years. You and I may not be in charge of millions of souls, but you know what? Parents have their children. Priests have their congregations. We all have friends and acquaintances and co-workers. And God reveals his glory to us, gives us these signs, open these doors, not just for ourselves, but to share those stories and those, that glory with the people that he's put in our lives. I'm very serious about this. This is not just a corny thing you have to say at the end of a homily. Think about the ways in which God has manifested himself to you this week and write those things down. I am not a journaler. I don't almost never do it. But when these things happen, I write them down. Because I know that there's going to come a time when darkness sets in, when the cross comes, and I'm going to forget, and I'm going to be tempted to run, and I go back, and I remember, and I look. All of those things that our Lord has done. And marvel at that. God is still with us. He is on the journey with every single one of us. Allow yourselves to know that, to recognize that, and be amazed by that. And don't forget the signs that he has worked in your lives. Those signs were given to you to sustain you on the journey to heaven.